Welcome to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camera. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thank you for joining me. Want to start off by doing a little bit of a recap of where we were the last couple of weeks, what we talked about, and then I'll give you a preview of today. We're going to go in a slightly different direction today. Um, we'll talk about it, but I think it'll be interesting and it's somewhat timely. So the last couple of weeks, uh, the last three to be precise, we spent two weeks talking about the last narc and specifically looking at the inconsistencies between uh, what people say in the last narc and what they've said elsewhere. Uh, you know, we talked about things that are different in Agent Breas's book from what's in the uh, what's in the the docu series, uh, and we looked at a lot of things that that just didn't add up. Things that were wrong and obviously wrong in the docu series, for example, having a picture of Captain Zavala that wasn't Captain Zavala. And then last week, we kind of looked at how the fraud, if you want to to be that pejorative, um, but how the fraud was perpetuated in a book by the journalist uh, J. Jesus Esquivel. Uh, who's a respected journalist. We talked about some of his other work for Processor Magazine and elsewhere, but things that are in his book about the Camarena case that really just repeat the misstatements of Boreas and his witnesses. And it kind of called into question, you know, what do you believe? And how do you make some judgments about what... Um, you know, what to believe, what a good source is, and, and those sorts of things. So so we did that, and I think that was very fruitful. This week, though, we're going to kind of move away from a discussion of the Camarena case and talk a little bit about the violence that's going on in Mexico right now and that's happened the last couple weeks, uh, particularly in the border towns in Mexico. We're going to talk a little bit about the history and then talk some about the cartel itself that's largely responsible for some of this violence, their leader, and then maybe have a few um, parting thoughts that relate back to the Camarena case and relate to how we look at that case. And I think we can draw a couple of parallels to... Uh, you know, the last narc, Agent Perez, and some of the, the allegations. Um, but we'll we'll try and pull it all together at the end. Before we do that, uh, I wanted to give our weekly Carl Quintero update. Not a whole lot new. Um, I do want to go back. You know, things kind of come up a little bit over time. And after Carl was arrested, there was an informal request from the U.S. for extradition. That's followed up by a more formal request, which includes indictments. We talked a little bit about competing indictments last week. Um, a Mexican court granted what essentially is a, a, an injunction against extradition. Um, we're not really sure how long that's going to last. It can be appealed by... Um, the, uh, the the Attorney General's Office, the FGR, 
um, in which case they'll go to a different court and there'll be some more determinations regarding uh, the extradition. But what's very clear, I think, is that the courts and even the government are treating this extradition a little bit different than they did, say, El Chapo and some others. And I still think the more likely result is going to be that they, they being the courts in Mexico, uh, require Caro to serve the remainder of his sentence in Mexico before they really consider extradition. Again, that's just a hunch. I'm not a Mexican attorney by any stretch. Don't have any inside information, but that's how it looks to me. Now, of course, we know that um, that the U.S. government is gearing up for uh, a prosecution of Carl Quintero in the United States, whether that's in California relating to the Camarena case or in um the Eastern District of New York, which would be more of just a drug conspiracy case. I also um, am waiting to see kind of what pressure, if any, the U.S. puts on Mexico to have him extradited, especially if that extradition goes to the Central District of California and relates to the Camarena case. So as we've said, every week we'll, we'll kind of keep track of what's going on. Many weeks there won't be anything new, but we'll talk about whatever there is. Okay. Again, you know, for the first 20 episodes, 21 episodes of this podcast, we've really focused almost exclusively on the Camarena case in the background. And today we're going to move just slightly away from that Um but there's lots of tangential connections, which we'll talk about. And we're going to talk about kind of the the violence that's been going on in Mexico. Um, and you probably read about it in, in different areas or in, in different media reports. And without going into you know too much detail, but apparently, you know, the wave of violence really started on or about um, August 9th in uh, Jalisco and... Um, Tijuana and other places um, where the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, CJNG, um, you know, they um, really were the ones behind the the violence. One of the things they did is um, they set a lot of vehicles on fire, and that's a well-known um, tactic of the traffickers. Either to prevent, uh, you know, police, fire, military from coming in, or as a way, kind of, you know, to use the uh, nuclear loose line from Bull Durham, you know, a way to announce your presence with authority. So they had, you know, this wave of violence started in on August 9th. Um, on August 11th, there was um, a brawl apparently between. Rival criminal gangs in Ciudad Juarez, uh, in the jail there. That led to some more violence in the, um, in the, that border town. At least 10 people died. Um, there were also um, reports of fires, killings, um, seized vehicles, vehicles set on fire in... Tecate, Tijuana, Rosarito, Ensenada, um, 
in Ensenada, there were some public buses set on fire. You know, so just a whole lot going on, again, mostly in border towns, mostly relating to uh, or being attributed to the Jalisco New Generation Cartel. And we're going to talk a lot about them in just a moment. You know, what did the Mexican government do? They sent in the, the National Guard and um, <laughs> the the uh, the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, came out and said, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. We've got 3,000 National Guard members patrolling the streets of Tijuana. Um, and that's really consistent with kind of the Mexican philosophy, the uh, the Mexican government philosophy. We've talked about the facts, fact that um, Lopez Obrador has um, in the past we taken kind of a hands off approach to the cartels, and you know that seems to be an ebb and flow of the government. Do you fight the cartels? Do you give them a little bit of latitude to do their stuff as long as they're not impacting the public too much um interestingly enough there's a a quote here that i wanted to to read to you so there's um a a think tank in washington dc that's um all about relations in in latin america and stephanie brewer is the director for mexico in that think tank and she responds in a quote that was in um, a a, a San Diego newspaper. But she says, unfortunately, what we have seen over the past 10 to 15 years is a lot of repetition of the same go-to strategies, which consists largely of military deployment, despite all of the evidence that shows us that this military deployment is not an effective strategy. It has remained at the centerpiece of the Mexican federal government's response to crime and violence. Um, You know, and somebody else, um, Cecilia Farfan Mendez, who's the co-founder of the Mexico Violence Resource Project, said, um, you know, in terms of what this does means, this, this means that the state increasingly looks weaker in relation to criminal groups. Uh, she says, as is often the case, what's going on in the criminal underworlds in the shadows is impossible for re- for us to really know. It's like shadow puppetry. So you think you're seeing something, you think you understand what's going on, but you have no way to confirm. So um, that I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to talk about that again at the end when we try to pull some stuff together. And one last quote. Um, presumably one of the criminal groups of a coalition could win, but we will perpetually be in a situation where any piece is really just a narco piece. It's a piece that is totally at the discretion of criminal groups. It is not because the state has developed effective policies. Okay, so that's that's one of the issues that, that's that's come up. So we've, we've got that. Um, the, the, Mex- or the, the United States government sent out some advisories talking about you know, places that Americans might not want to visit. Um, 
So not surprisingly, they left out most of the major tourist places and said, okay, those are still okay to travel to, even though they do um, have caution against traveling to Tijuana. Uh, there was a period of time when American personnel in Tijuana and some other places in Mexico were ordered to shelter in place. Those are no longer in effect. But we have this recurring cycle of violence, this recurring issue of uh, the Mexican government's response to it. And I want to now kind of trace the history of this, all right? And and we're not going to do um, a long history lesson here, but I want to show you how this relates to kind of the mythology around the Guadalajara cartel. And you know my feelings about that phrase. But we're going to talk about that. We're going to do a little bit of the history of the uh, the CJNG, the uh, Cartel Jalisco New Generation. And we're going to talk a little bit about El Mencho. And then, as I said at the beginning, we'll, we'll do a little bit of a what in the heck does this all mean and why have I been listening to you for a while. So I want to go back to 1985-ish. So let's say 84, Guadalajara, prior to the Camarena case. And there's the perception that the first real cartel, the first real group of of people to get together uh, to traffic drugs was the Guadalajara cartel that everybody worked under Felix Gallardo. He had everything under control. Uh, and you know, that, that, that was kind of the genesis of everything. And then things fell apart after the Camarena case and after Felix Gallardo was put into prison. And I don't think the facts always match the mythology. Okay. We talked about this some already in, in past, um, episodes, but number one, I don't think there was anything called the Guadalajara Narcotics Cartel. It certainly wasn't called that at the time. But moreover, you, you had three guys, you know, Caro Fonseca and, and Felix Gardo, who were basically from the same hometown. Fonseca and, and Caro were related, at least by marriage. But they were drug traffickers, right? You know, Gallardo was mostly in the cocaine business, working a lot with, you know, uh, Mata Ballesteros, getting drugs from Colombia through Mexico into the United States and and developing the routes and the way to do that and, and all of that. You know, Carl was mostly on the marijuana side. Did they work together? Probably. Did they work together when it helped them? Probably. Did they work separately when there was no advantage to working together? I'm sure that's the case. Uh, they certainly weren't, you know, to call them again a cartel, uh, it just makes no sense. Uh, at best, they were a loose affiliation of folks. All right. So you've got you've got that notion. The other notion that I think is just wrong is this idea, again, that nobody else was out there. We know that Felix Gallardo worked with the plaza leaders. We know that he kind of, you know, helped Everybody stay in their territory. He was able to use uh, his guile, his business sense, his political connections, 
um, and, and probably a fair amount of arm twisting in one way, shape, or form uh, to keep people in line for the most part. And once that centralized leader figure kind of went away, everybody split up and, and that created a lot of the divisions and the cartels. So there's a little bit of, of that that's true. But we also know that there were families, there were groups of traffickers working in various parts of the country that had very little affiliation with Gallardo, very little affiliation with what was happening in Guadalajara. And um, it, it doesn't do us any good when we're looking back on things to kind of overstate the influence of the Guadalajara traffickers or of Gallardo. And I think that a good way to look at that is to look at how the Jalisco New Generation cartel developed. So in the 1970s or so, there was a, a family, the Valencia family, that were primarily avocado farmers uh, in Jalisco and Michoacan, and um, they started working with uh, various drug traffickers and ended up developing what, what I think we would call a family cartel, for lack of a better word. And uh, they actually, you know, developed some power. They became part of what was referred to as the Sinaloa Foundation in the early 2000s. And then they, they had a, a variety of issues, you know, starting in about 2009 or so, where a couple of the leaders of this cartel or of this group were arrested. One of the primary leaders of this uh, Sinaloa Federation was arrested. And again, um, you know, there's places where you can get all the names and things. I'm not going to uh, go into that much detail for, for this purpose, um, in part because I don't want to butcher every uh, Mexican name. Uh, but again, we had this, this power um, vacuum at this time, both within that Sinaloa Federation and within the Millennial Cartel. And I don't think I said that. The Valencia family ended up being the Millennial Cartel, M-I-L-E-N-I-O. Um, and as a result, that cartel, the Millennial Cartel, broke into several smaller factions. Okay, There were two primary ones that ended up developing. So there was one group called La Resistencia. Well, I'm going to try that one more time. Resistencia, sorry. And then there was the um, Los Torrecidos, which end up later becoming the uh, CJNG. Okay, so the, we ended up with these two different um, factions that end up going to war with one another in a lot of respects. So the CJNG really kind of first announced for lack of a better way of putting it, um, their presence in June of 2009. And essentially what happened was um, there was a, a truck that was abandoned in Cancun, residential area of Cancun, 
when Mexican authorities opened up the van, they found uh, three corpses, and then there was a message. And the message said, we are the new group Mata Zetas, so Zeta killers, and we are against kidnapping and extortion, and we will fight them in all states for a cleaner Mexico. There apparently is a YouTube video of these three guys, who the dead guys, um, being uh, interrogated. They confessed to criminal activities. They gave the names of police that they had for protection. And again, then they were killed. What's interesting is that this message is very consistent with of the early messaging of the... CJNG, the idea that they were going to be the upstanding group. They were going to be the ones that um, were protecting the civilians and uh, making sure that the common person wasn't being abused as a result of the actions of the other um, cartels in the area, most prominently Los Zetas. So we end up with this kind of turf war that happens um, where the the Sinaloa cartel and the Gulf cartel and the Knights Templar are kind of uh, uniting against um, the the Zetas and uh, those that are supporting the Zetas. And you really end up with a, a um, you know, a whole series of what you'll call, you know, massacres. You've got, um, yeah, a, a lot happening in Veracruz in 2011, 2012. There are efforts by the military um, to make Veracruz safe. There was something called Operation Safe Veracruz that was launched in 2011. Um, You have more attacks. You've got uh, attacks in Veracruz in in 2012. There are, you know, more and more things happen. Guadalajara massacres in 2011 uh, and 2012. Then in about 2012, the Knights Templar and the um, CJNG had a, you know, uh, they were kind of working together. And again, it's one of those things that, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, at some point, they um, were, were no longer their friend. And so the Jalisco New Generation Cartel started a turf war against the, the Knights Templar. And they came out again with the idea of saying that the Knights Templar were abusing innocent people and operating through kidnappings, extortion, protection, racketeering, property theft, and rape. And that the CJNG was coming in to protect the common person from the Knights Templar. And, and, uh, the the Knights Templar really ended up kind of disbanding. And um, by about 2016, I think they don't really exist anymore. 
So you've got a whole lot of things that, that happen. The most significant thing probably uh, coming in about 2012 or so was, um, or 2016, I'm sorry, was a kidnapping that occurred. All right, so we're talking August 2016, nice restaurant, La Leche, in Puerto Varta. The CJNG kidnapped two sons of El Chapo, who had recently been uh, arrested. So two kids, Jesus Alfredo Guzman Salazar and uh, his brother Ivan, along with some friends, um, were kidnapped and um, eventually released after some negotiations. This really, really you know, solidified the split between CJNG and the Sinaloa cartel, of course. Um, and it, um, it was seen as you know, a way of showing that, especially with El Chapo in prison, that CJNG could act almost with impunity and that the, you know, the Sinaloa cartel might have been the most powerful cartel for a while, but it wasn't anymore. Right. Um, lots, of, lots of different things happened um, o- over time, you know, and um, you had a lot of really bloody battles between the Sinaloa cartel and um, the CJNG. You had a lot of issues with respect to you know, the fight over Nuevo Laredo, um, which, of course, is, is the busiest border crossing in, in terms of truck crossings. Um, it actually has Nuevo Laredo. It, it is said to have 1.7 million trucks cross at that border every year, which is like more than double anyplace else. It's also the fourth busiest border in terms of passenger vehicles. So a lot of fight, big turf war over Nuevo Laredo. Um, And uh, you had um, some different things happening in Guadalajara. There was uh, a couple of grenades thrown at the consulate. 2017, though, the next important thing happens with respect to the CJNG. So you end up with a situation where one of the top lieutenants in the group, somebody by the name of El Cholo, Carlos Enrique Sanchez El Cholo, um, he apparently had murdered or had murdered uh, a financial operator, El Colombiano, um, and he did that without permission of El Mencho, who is the head of the cartel. We'll talk about El Mencho in a few minutes. So El Mencho put a hit out on on um, El Cholo. That wasn't successful. And as a result, um, El Cholo and a person by the name of Eric Valencia Salazar, L85, who had helped to form the CJNG along with El Mencho. Um, They left and started a new cartel called the Nueva Plaza Cartel. 
and uh, there ended up becoming a pretty significant war between those two groups. Um, the uh, Jalisco New Generation basically won that war, and um, in March of 2021, uh, El Cholo was found murdered. Um, his body was stabbed and wrapped in plastic, put on a park bench, and had a sign on him that called him a traitor. So it was a it was a brutal killing um, and a public execution or a public staging of it. Um, there's also some YouTube videos. Um, that purport to show El Cholo being interrogated, at least up until the time he was murdered. Uh, interestingly enough, if you look at the CJNG, they've kind of um, varied from time to time. Uh, they were very powerful. There was a period of time when some people thought that um, their influence was waning, and then they've kind of picked back up and probably... Um, are the most active of the cartels operating now. Obviously, there are lots of other cartels. There are several that are big, including the Sinaloa cartel, of course. Um, but the CJNG is is in lots of, of areas. So according to the DEA and some other documentation, um, the CJNG is really the primary... Uh, or the dominant cartel in Jalisco, Colima, Michoacan, the uh, Veracruz, uh, Pueblo, Hidalgo, uh, other areas such as that. It um, has a big influence in Sonora, uh, Tijuana, Juarez. Uh, the area called Tierra Caliente, which is uh, parts of Michoacan, Guerrero. Uh, there also have been making big efforts to get into the state of Mexico itself. And you probably heard a lot about the battles that have been going on in the Riviera Maya, an area that usually, or at least in the past, had been pretty well hands-off. Um, but one of the, the dominant groups trying to establish a foothold there is the CJNG. Um, internationally, it's said that they um, have contacts besides the United States and Canada, but that they also work with uh, traffickers in Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, Australia, China, Southeast Asia, etc. So that's that's the group. So that's the one that has been causing the problems in the last, uh, the last little bit. Um, their power, their influence is great. The, uh, you know, kind of the reasons for their recent uh, push for the violence can be, um, you know, subject to some debate. As as we talked about at the beginning, uh, you know, some of it is announcing their presence, um, showing their domination. You know, it is coincidental, perhaps, that it is tied towards the, um, or, or that the timing is uh, close to Caracantero's capture. Uh, you can talk, you know, 
if, sorry, if um, Caro Quintero was still in the drug business in the last few years when he was um, out of jail, and if in particular he had any influence on the Sinaloa cartel, um, you know, is there a relationship between the CJNG, uh, you know, showing its power, showing its presence, and, um, you know, and again, in relation to something negative happened to the Sinaloa cartel. All right. So that's the CJNG. I want to talk about El Mencho for a second. So El Mencho is really one of these uh, almost mythological figures in, in Mexico. Uh, very few pictures of him. Very little information about him. Um, but his power and his influence is as significant as almost any other cartel leader ever. So he was born in Michoacan in 64 or 66. I think it was July of one of those two years, but you can find either one. As we've talked about before, information from Mexico in the 60s, 70s, and even in the 80s is really hard to come by. Um, he grew up, worked in the avocado fields. Apparently, he, his family was extremely poor. He dropped out of school sometime around the fifth grade. He eventually um, fled into the United States or migrated into the United States illegally sometime in the 1980s. Um, we know during the late 80s, he lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. He was arrested several times. Um, in 1989, he was sentenced to five years in prison and incarcerated at the Big Springs Correctional Center in Texas. Um, one thing about that location is apparently it's a big spot for um, housing illegal immigrants who are going to be uh, deported once they're released. And there is a lot of suspicion that he um, he developed... Uh, a lot of his criminal instincts, criminal education, uh, you know, aside from him being kind of a petty thief um, and some petty crimes in, you know, in San Francisco that led to his arrest and his incarceration, but that his, his criminal mind really developed while he was there and that he had developed connections to some of the cartels and families working in Mexico. So he was... He served three years, and then he was deported. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, when he left or when he got back to Mexico, he worked for a couple of local police forces and then finally um, joined the Millennial Cartel. Um, we've already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, there was this power gap um, and that there was a split, and he really quickly rose not only from you know being a um, you know a criminal being deported, joining the cartel, really rose up in the cartel, and then when there's a split, you know he's really the head of this new cartel that ended up becoming known as the um, the CJNG. Over the years, so you know we're we're looking again in. Um, you know, really th that group 
coming into play 2009, so we're talking another 13 years, you know, there have been numerous manhunts, uh, numerous criminal charges. He's been designated as a, a kingpin. Uh, there's rewards, etc. Nothing. Okay. Um, you know, I'm sure that there are some, uh, you know, have been some close calls. The assumption is, of course, that he's got people on his uh, payroll that uh, do a very good job of, of protecting him. Uh, you know, part of the assumption also is um, that he has, uh, you know, some some near military folks around him that really keep him protected. Um, and so, you know, not much has happened. We're also led to believe that unlike people such as El Chapo, um, he keeps a pretty low profile, uh, lives much more modestly, stays away from big cities, uh, you know, done nothing, uh, you know, kind of ostentatious, personally um his daughter was arrested in washington dc in february of 2020 um one of his godsons had been arrested in uh the u.s in 2019 february 2020 his daughter was arrested um she was sentenced to two and a half years in prison in March of 2021. In November 2021, his wife, who um, was believed to be kind of the chief financial officer of the cartel, was arrested in Mexico. She had previously been arrested on money laundering charges, but um, was granted bail. And uh, she's now uh, incarcerated and has not been given bail. Uh, it's been reported that El Mencho has kidney disease. He may have built a hospital uh, specifically for the purposes of, of being treated. In February of this year, so February of 22, lots of rumors, lots of rumors that he had died in a private hospital in Guadalajara where he's been treated for the kidney disease. There is... Um, no confirmation of that, and though there were lots of rumors in that February time frame, those rumors have pretty well died out, and um, I think I think that the general consensus is that he is still out there, still alive, still running the cartel, but likely in some state of bad health or deteriorating health. Okay. So that is a kind of a a shortened version, though it may have seemed long, um, of going through kind of the genesis of the CJNG, the genesis of El Mencho rising to power, and those two, you know, the the leader and and the cartel being the ones largely responsible for the violence that we've seen in the last few weeks in Mexico. So what's the, the message here? What, what's the purpose of going through this? Well, number one, I think it's just important to understand what's going on. You know, we talk about 
the Camarena case. We talk about how um, you know things have developed over time in in Mexico, and I think it's important to understand how those things translate into today. You know uh, how things that happened in 1984 and 1985 have led their way to car bombs and car fires in Tijuana and Americans being told to shelter in place. So that's number one. Number two is if you were to draw the, uh, like the family trees of some of these cartels, it would be unbelievable because they come, they go, they're friends, then they're enemies, families split, families get together. Um, and so anybody who tries to tell you that there is a straight line between almost any two sets of events involving the cartels in Mexico probably is giving a truncated or simplistic version of events. And one of the things that becomes very difficult is understanding how all those relationships work, who really is aligned with whom, and who can be exploited, and I mean that in a good way, uh, if you're looking at getting information, if you're looking at, uh, from, say, the Mexican government perspective of making inroads uh, against the cartels, if you're the DEA in Mexico looking for information today, if you're the DEA in Los Angeles working on Operation Leyenda, looking at a possible prosecution of Caro Quintero, you have to understand all of those dynamics. When... uh, When I was in Mexico last, I spoke with someone, um, and and I want to be very careful of not giving away anybody's identity, but this particular person made a, a very strong point of talking about how important it is to be seen in a certain way, and the number of people who look at activities of traffickers or cartel folks or people potentially associated with them and the importance of understanding all of those dynamics. And again, that translates to anybody trying to deal with the cartels or deal with witnesses. All these, you know, you you have the normal stuff of big bad cartels and people being afraid of them but then you have the family ties and the history all of those are really important and all of those come into play all right um i think i went a little bit longer than i intended i hope any of this um made some sense i know we kind of went through it a little bit quickly but i hope you could follow there's some really good websites that go through a lot of this um you know, as far as El Mencho's history, uh, you know, El Cholo, uh, you know, look, if you want to see disgusting images, uh, look for uh, his death on the web, and I'm sure you can find some. 
Okay, next week we're going to go back to the Camarena case. We're going to talk um, in spe- in specific terms. Um, again, we're going to about some of the other follow ups to uh, the last narc, both the docu series and um, Agent Breyes's book. We're specifically going to look at some uh, recent assertions um, that have appeared on social media that are, again, new and different than were said in either the book or the docuseries. And we will evaluate the degree to which any of them can or should be believed. Um, And that'll get us kind of back on track with the Camarena case. And again, we'll keep looking at Carl Quintero and what's happening there. Um, looking forward, working on a couple of guests. I know I keep promising guests, but it's really hard to schedule some people. Um, so we've got a couple of guests coming up, things that we're going to talk about. Still working on uh, getting that video on YouTube that I've talked about. I think you'll like it. Um, so I'm not going to beef it up too much or, or hype it too much so that there's no disappointment and still working on the website. So those will all be coming. Thank you again. Uh, again, if you are interested, look at my book. Uh, someone had to die. If you like the case, uh, look at Jaime Kirkendall's book as well and have a really great week. We will talk to you next week. And thanks again for joining. <laughs>